I'll just get your mic on here. Is that right? Yep. We've got Give power. us a one, two. We got you? Got me. Okay, excellent. Shane, thank you so much for coming here My tonight. Pleasure. We're really excited to have you. Uh, I just thought I'd ask you a few questions. That's probably a bit loud. Luke, you want to turn my mic down? Thanks, mate. Um, just, yeah, we want to get to know you a bit better. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your family, all that kind of stuff. Yes. Well, I'm an old man now. I have, uh, I'm married to Ellie. Been married 26 years. And I have three teenage boys. Well, actually, they're older than teenage now. My oldest is 21, 19, and 16. So, wow, that is your family. Yeah, you are old. Okay. I am very um, old. And what do, you, what do you do like during the day? I said you're Dean of Theology at Alpha Crucis College, is that right? That's right, yes. Well, what does that mean? What so do you do? Alpha Crucis is a strange word, isn't it? It's yep. the star at the bottom of the Southern Cross, in case you uh, didn't know that. Didn't but know that. Uh, Alpha Crucis is a Pentecostal college, which is in Parramatta. So it's the, uh, it's the main training centre for what used to be the Assemblies of God in Australia. Okay. And so I teach theology for a living, which is a fantastic job. Wow, so you're in the lecture theatre often? You're... Yeah, I teach a couple of times a week. and uh, Marking essays, all that stuff. Yeah, look, I'm fortunate that I'm senior enough to not have to do too much marking anymore. <laughs> that is awesome. It's the worst part of the job, seriously. Yeah, almost as bad as writing yeah, them. Yeah. That's, no, that's... Maybe not. But... Okay, cool, awesome. And you've been there for a little while at Alpha Cruces? I've been there since 95, so yeah, okay, a long a little time while. now. Awesome. And tell us a bit about um, you know, your Christian walk. Did you grow up in a Christian family or did you come to Christ later in life? Or? Yeah, my family were Dutch and an atheist background, but my family got saved when I was 16. Um, so uh, I got saved at about the same time and into a Pentecostal church. So I've been in Pentecostal churches all my life. Um, we moved to Sydney, actually somewhere near the northern beaches here to study, and I became a chartered accountant, and still am that, and got a little disillusioned, so I went and studied theology instead. Okay, awesome. Mm. Well, mate, we, we, we look forward to hearing about your story and hearing, uh, and hearing you preach from God's Word to us, so can I get you to welcome Shane one more time, and, and thank you so much, mate. I'll leave it over to you. Thank you. I get to speak in an Anglican church, so... Um, I'm going to cite the Pope later on as well, so what do you do with that, eh? Well, my text for today, and you don't need to look it up, it's a simple one, it's the verse right at the end of the love passage in Corinthians 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. I'll come back to it, um, but I'm going to start um, by telling you a little bit of my story. In fact, two days ago, was the sixth year anniversary of my injury. And uh, it doesn't, it, six years seems like a long time, but it doesn't seem very long to me. And uh, there's a photo, I think, on the screen there. Am I looking at what you guys are seeing? So I was down with my family. Uh, at, we, uh, we grew up in Nara, so we were at a church in Nara. In fact, this, uh, the phone pit that you see there was set up by a youth group. There's a lesson in life here for youth leaders. Be careful of the things that you make for young people. And so we were down there. My kids were having a go on uh, what was a, it was a mega jump that was set up really that they'd ride skateboards or push bikes. And the idea was that you took this jump and you landed in that foam pit there. Of course, the point of the foam pit is that it's meant to keep you safe. Um, and I was one of these dads that used to get involved with all of the things that my kids did. So I thought, well, let me have a go. And I jumped on a push bike, um, took the jump, and landed 
um, I guess slightly upside down in the foam pit and I knew immediately that I was in serious trouble. Um, my wife and all my kids were there. In fact, my wife is videoing it. We've got a video of this incident. It doesn't actually look like very much at all. You know, you watch these YouTube clips and you look at the things that happen to people and you're amazed that they get up and walk. Or you look at mine and you think nothing's happened, but I couldn't move. It's a scary feeling. I had my head buried in the phone there. I called out to my wife and said I'd broken my neck. So she came, uh, the paramedics came. They had to move me very gingerly out and we took that helicopter there. They flew me up to Prince of Wales Hospital um, and they uh, took an x-ray and an MRI on my neck and um, I think I've got a slide of that as well. In fact, you can see where the break is. So that's in my fifth and sixth vertebrae there. Um, that is a, that, in case you can't tell what it is, that's my neck and my skull. It's a really cool x-ray, that one, isn't it? Um, with the pins there in the neck. So, um, the, depending upon where exactly in your vertebrae your break is, that affects what level of movement you've got. Um, so, quadriplegic, it just means I've had four legs, uh, four limbs affected. Um, in my case, uh, the level of, uh, or the effect of the injury is that I can't move and feel from about the upper chest there down. So, I've got shoulder movement. Um, I've got, for example, biceps, so I can lift that arm up, but I don't have triceps. So if I go the other direction there, I can't get that arm to go the other way, and um, I don't have wrist or hands. Um, what they say, and as you can see, I don't have a lot of control. Um, this is just a spasm. It's just par for the course. You think spinal cord injury is the absence of feeling and movement, but actually, it's just distorted feeling and movement. Um, but what happens when you break your neck, the idea is, they say, keep the person really still. Because often the damage is done um, after the break because what the neck is, the, the bones are supposed to do is to protect the spinal cord. And so if you move the neck around, then you're actually doing more damage uh, to the spinal cord. So hopefully, um, when you have the initial break, the whole area swells up and you can't move a thing. But over the course of sort of months and years, everywhere, anywhere up to two years, you can get some recovery. In fact, I know people who started off unable to move and at the end of six months were pretty well back to normal. Um, I had a little bit of recovery, not much. Um, nothing on my left side, but my right side has meant that I've got both biceps, but I can do that. So I've got triceps and some hand movement. Um, it makes a big difference to my life. Um, because, for example, I can feed myself and have a drink. Um, for spasm and for pain, I take Baclavin tablets, which um, one of the side effects, apparently, is that it causes dry mouth, which doesn't sound like much of a symptom, does it? Except when you talk for a living, and uh, then you discover the problem of dry mouth. So I spent seven months in Prince of Wales Hospital in rehabilitation, and as you can imagine, um, the lack of the privacy, the noise, and above all, the terrible food. Seriously, hospital food's bad when you're there for a week. Try eating hospital food for seven months, and uh, you can, as you can imagine, I was pretty desperate for discharge. Well, on the first night home, um, my family were giving me a hug. And they were all gathered around my chair, and my second oldest son 
uh, Jacob just happened to be leaning against the joystick of my chair and all five of us went through, uh, hit the table there which went through the back windscreen, uh, uh, the, the back screen in our house and um, it, it was really sort of funny to be honest with you, we laughed about it um, but I think it was also symbolic because it really wasn't I think until I got home that I really faced up to the magnitude of my loss. Um, You sort of imagine that when you're leaving hospital, you're going back to some sort of a normal life. Um, But really, uh, at home was when it really hit me. And um, living with a spinal cord injury and a disability is both better and worse than is generally imagined. Uh, You you always hear people say, well, um, you know, if I become a quadriplegic, turn off the machine. Um, But... uh, I'm glad that they didn't turn off the machine. Um, it's, it, living with a spinal cord injury is both better and worse than you might imagine it to be. Um, and so six years down the track, I can say I'm grateful, very grateful to be alive. Um, but it's also the case that living with this stupid body has its challenges. Um, an injury of this type affects every part of life. Um, I've got to put up with nerve pain and bladder and bowel complications. Um, You might have heard, for example, I made a lovely fart noise there. Um, I don't know if it came through the microphone, but I almost have to warn people because it's weird when you're public speaking and you fart in front of an audience. Um, But I don't have any control of that part of my body and so it just makes weird noises. Um, I've got to deal with carers in my house, a lack of privacy, and... Probably above all, I've really struggled over the course of time to work out how to be a good husband and a good father. Um, Many of the ways in which you are a husband is to help around the home, to sort of participate in the equality of a marriage. But how do you be a husband um, mutually giving to your partner when a lot of the ways in which you generally do that is taken away? And also, um, being a dad, I was you know, a surfer, I was the sort of dad who took their kids onto these stupid jumps, wasn't I? Um, And paid the price, but I couldn't then work out afterwards for a long time, you know, how do I be a good father when I can't do the sort of things that used to define my fatherhood? Now, I'm telling you all of this not to make you feel sorry for me. The truth is that my difficulties are no better or worse than anyone else's. To be human is actually to experience the ups and downs of life. It's to be born, it's to grow, and it's to suffer, and ultimately, it's to die. If you're not disabled yet, then just give yourself time, because one day you will be. I've got a little slide here of Calvin. This is uh, the famous Calvin and Hobbes. He makes the observation, that's one of the remarkable things about life, he says. It's never so bad that it can't get worse. Well, the question then that confronted me after my injury was, how can I be happy? How can I live well? How can I flourish, given the losses that I'd had to deal with and given the challenges of living with a permanent disability? And I've done a lot of thinking about this topic. Um, I've written about it. I think um, it's okay to say I bought my memoir, uh, if you're interested, which is up the back there. Um, If you're wanting a really deep spiritual memoir, that's not for you. Um, I'm a bit too real in that. And to go through this sort of experience is not as spiritual 
as you th- sometimes uh, think it would be for a theology teacher. Um, but, um, but I really got to sort of think about life and meditate on the scriptures. And really I want to share with you tonight a particular or, or, or set of meditations that I've had really exploring the text that I've raised to you before. Um, again, it's Paul's words at the end of that um, 13th chapter of Corinthians. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. For Paul, faith, hope and love then summarise the transformative experience of the gospel. And in Christian theological tradition, faith, hope and love are very important. They've, been come, they've come to be known as the theological virtues. And they're gifts of grace that transform a person's character. And I was, as I was thinking about uh, this particular verse, I was struck by the realisation that whatever my loss, something remains, which is faith, hope and love. So let me um, share uh, just something on each of these three virtues. Well, I'm sure you've heard of the definition of faith in Hebrews, which, which we're told faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. I'm often asked whether my injury has caused me to doubt my faith. And the answer is, well, both yes and no. When you're trapped in bed, staring at a ceiling, unable to move, the line between why me, God, and are you there, God, is very thin indeed. So it's definitely the case that I've experienced moments and often days and sometimes weeks and months of doubt, but at one and the same time, faith has been very important to me. The fact of human suffering is often put forward by atheists as reasons for questioning the existence and character of God. I'm sure you've heard the problem of pain before or thought about it, Um, Why would a good God allow people to suffer? Or in my case, why God, if you love me, have you allowed me to become or caused me to become a quadriplegic? And it's an issue I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, The person I studied my PhD with, Professor Neil Omerod, um, visited me every week of a seven-month stay in hospital, as did many other people, my wife every day. Uh, And we spend a lot of time thinking about the problem of pain. We talk about it. Um, I've written on it uh, in my memoir, in in articles. It's been one of these topics I've thought about and written about so much. And of course, after six years of thinking about the topic, I've realised that there's no answer to a certain degree that you can give, or at least no perfect or complete answer. But there's ways in which we can speak about the topic. And I don't want to spend too much time touching on them now, but in brief, I'll just touch on two answers or two ways of talking about it. Um, And the first is the recognition that human suffering is at least partly a result of sin so that we can say, well, much of suffering is our fault, not God's. It doesn't take much, of course, to look at the world and to know that this is true. And as Christians, we shouldn't be embarrassed to talk about sin. Sometimes I think we are. Uh, 
Now, of course, it's not a great counselling technique. Um, not even Donald Trump, I think, would tell a smoker dying of lung cancer that they're getting what they deserved. And it is the case that too often Christian talk of sin can be mean-spirited and judgmental. But we need to face up to sin and we need to talk about sin because if we don't, evil persists and grace isn't given the opportunity to bring about healing. Um, Sin is a social problem and often that social problem is particularly targeted against people with disabilities. So it's important to me as a person with a disability to face up to the extent to which sin, uh, whether that's in society or sometimes in the church, is having a real impact on the disabled or the suffering or the sick. Um, But it's also the case that while spinal cord injury is sometimes a result of sin, for example, a drunk driver crashes a car and, um, and experiences the consequences of that, but more often than not, it's really just bad luck or part of the natural experience of life. In my case, I landed my push bike badly and there's no one to blame for my broken neck well except maybe God and what do you do with that excuse me as I take another drink well a second set of answers which you might have heard before is the idea that suffering contributes to our good. This is our Nick Vajusic. I'm sure you've heard of him before. If you haven't, you can see him on the internet. He's a, he's a, a Christian person with a disability. He's got no arms and legs. Um, and he says that God won't allow anything to happen in your life if it's not for your own good. Now, the truth is that I don't completely agree with Nick on that particular statement. Although I think if anyone's got the right to say it, he probably does. Uh, I'm a Pentecostal, so I don't read enough of Calvin. Um, But I think it's true to at least say, or to at least recognise that much that is good in human life is a consequence of our response to suffering. I've experienced in my short time with quadriplegia, staggering generosity from people. Heartfelt compassion, courageous determination, exemplary, in fact, amazing care. Um, It's true that in the course of my time living with this injury, I've been enveloped in love, I've had people praying for me all over the place, Um, and so many people have walked with me through difficult times. But even so, I think, there's a difference between saying, God did this for your own good, and the prayer, God, please bring good out of this mess. So, look, enough abstract theology. Um, There's more that we could say to the problem of pain, and some of it gets very, very theoretical and abstract. But I also think that much of it is wrong-headed. In answer to the question, why God?, we have to just face up to what it is to be human, to be a creature of the earth, to be born, to grow, to break down and to die, to be limited in power, strength and knowledge, to be fragile and vulnerable, to be constituted by DNA 
and imperfect genes and bones that flex and break, muscles that tear, blood that spills. We are God's creatures created in his image, yes, but we're still fragile. I'm a quadriplegic because to be human is to be subject to the vulnerabilities of everyday life. And I think that faith is the key to flourishing in the context of vulnerability. Faith is trusting God, whatever the circumstances, in good times and bad. Faith isn't the opposite of doubt, but incorporates it. Christian faith is trusting in the God who sent Jesus, in the God who knows what it is to suffer, who on the cross shares with us even that feeling of what it is to be abandoned by God. The final words of Jesus on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama semakbakthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I've got to tell you that those words are powerful when you're in a hospital bed and, uh, and are dealing with something like a spinal cord injury or cancer or any other number of problems that we all face. It's interesting because my brand of Christianity, Pentecostalism, emphasises faith in healing and prosperity. I've got a lovely slide here, which I'm not sure whether you've seen this um, particular picture before. Um, And of course, I am Pentecostal, and so while I do agree that we should and that we should pray for miracles, at the same time, if we get things wrong... Um, we get things wrong if we think that faith should enable us to avoid suffering, sickness and permanent disability. And I think the problem here is the object of faith. And uh, Pentecostals and maybe some Anglicans as well often put the object of faith in the wrong thing. We think that faith, or, or we make the object of faith our healing, when in fact the object of faith is God, is Jesus. And what we should be trusting in is that God is with us and that God can bring purpose and meaning out of the horror and despair that we sometimes face. Uh, that we sometimes face. All right, that's faith. Faith, then, we're told um, in the book of Hebrews, is the substance of things hoped for. And hope looks beyond the vagaries of daily life and grounds hopefulness in the promises and the character of God. It's more than wishful thinking because it makes a real difference to life in the here and now. As I said, I'm going to read to you a quote from the Pope. This is Benedict. He says, Hope draws the future into the present so that it's no longer simply a not yet. The fact that the future exists changes the present. The present is touched by the future reality And thus, things of the future spill over into those of the present. Hope's power, in other words, is that it transforms the present. Hope's a creative power that enables us to look beyond the despair of the moment and see a different future. Hope doesn't eliminate suffering, but it empowers us to persevere through the dark times. In another passage of Scripture, Paul Uh, says, and this is uh, the book of Corinthians, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. 
And it's a wonderful scripture because it's actually a paradox. It's an embrace of weakness. It's facing up to the reality of our fragility. But it's not a capitulation to pessimism or hopelessness. In facing up to the hardship of life, Paul isn't crushed by it. His weakness opens the door to God's grace and grace is powerful and potent. So weakness and power go together in Paul through the Spirit. As he says in 2 Corinthians 4, we are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Therefore, he says, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Well, the truth is, I'm not as sanguine as Paul about my so-called light and momentary troubles. But I have experienced the sufficiency of his grace and the power of hope. Um, Even, I think, or especially in the darkest times. Uh, Six years ago, as I said, I can still remember the first week being trapped in ICU. Um, But even when life seems to be at its bleakest, or maybe especially when life is at its bleakest, that at least is when I've encountered most the grace of the Holy Spirit and the power of hope. And it's the idea that even in the darkest of times, God's got a better future for us. Well, transcending faith and hope, we're told by Paul, is love. The truth is that most of us, if left to our own devices, will, on our own, lose both faith and hope when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's in the love of God and others that we are lifted up to have renewed faith and hope when everything's lost. You see, the problem of pain raises questions about the love of God since the cry, why me, God, might equally be, be restated as, don't you love me, God? If my spinal cord injury has any meaning, it's found in the constant love of my wife and children who are on the screen there. In the ways my parents put their life on hold to care for my family, uh, in the deep and meaningful conversations and also the silly and absurd conversations I've had with close friends, in the wisdom and compassion of doctors, in in the attentiveness of nurses and carers. And I return this love when all these people experience the joy of my rehab and when I respond to them with gratitude uh, and encourage them not to lose hope. I mentioned right at the start here, and I'm almost finished, that one of my real challenges has been the impact of the injury upon my family life and especially my relationship with my kids. For, For many years, I couldn't work out how to be a dad. And then one day... I asked my children to take over my nighttime care. 
And uh, I have carers in the morning to get me out of bed, take me to the toilet, shower me, and then at night to put me to bed. And uh, what that meant was that at 8 o'clock every night, a carer would turn up and I'd go to bed. And that's a bit of a shock for a 40-year-old to have this sort of regimented 8 o'clock bedtime. So I thought, well, here's a really good idea. Um, Let me ask my kids to do this. And it it, it sounds like a good idea, but actually, this is a pretty big thing to ask of teenagers um, because it involves pretty explicit nudity and, well, complete nudity, actually, which is an odd thing for uh, for children and their parents, and also dealing with bodily fluids, uh, we and things like that. Um, But they were willing... And the consequences were more than just some flexibility of when I went to bed. Because all of a sudden, we got to spend some deep and meaningful time together. And sure, I would rather have spent that time surfing, but this was the opportunity that we had together. And I I cannot tell you how much this has meant, because I've benefited from their loving care. And I think they've also learned a lot about the virtues of caring. And we've just got to spend another hour of a day together. So all of this to say that it's in the love of my kids also that I then discover the love that God has for me. Paul says here, Now these three remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. And I guess the lesson for this for me and hopefully for you is that whatever situations you face in life, however bleak life gets, there is something that remains and, there's, and that thing that remains might look small at first but it transforms life and it enables you to flourish, to be happy and six years down the track, my life's not easy um, but I can say that I feel like I'm at least beginning to flourish and I really do owe that to God, uh, to faith, to hope and to the love of God and my family. So there you go. Thank you, David.